First Corinthians chapter 16, we're going to look at all of it. I don't know if you ever have this happen, but you're just walking or doing something and a, and a thought comes up into your mind. Well, I, had a, I was reminded of a story way back in my past that perfectly kind of fits this text. And it had to do when I was very, very young. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember where I was at, where I stood, what I was wearing. I was sweating a lot more than normal. My heart was racing. And I had in my right hand a note, a carefully folded note. And it wasn't just any note. This was a breakup note. My first, I heard a gasp. <gasps> my first, and I actually think it's my, my, well, it was my last breakup, breakup note. Now, I won't tell you how old I was when this happened. I'll only say this. It was the longest two weeks of my life. The relationship came to an impasse when this girl gave me an ultimatum. She said I could either play basketball at lunch with my friends or we'd have to break up. Now, I I knew that every relationship had sacrifices involved, but to this day, and I stand by this, she asked too much. (laughs) And so I didn't need to think about it or discuss it or pray about it. We were done. But I still had to break up with her, obviously with a note. But how do you write that note? I mean, notes are hard to write, but how how do you write that note? How do you end that note? There was no Google. I don't think my family had a computer at that point. And I went down to look at my, you know, my family's Encyclopedia Britannica. Shocker, no help in this, okay? There's no section that says how to write a breakup note. So there I was with my pencil, you know, a spiral-bound lined paper, and my conviction that I just needed to break up with this girl. Notes are hard to write especially the ending of a letter. Not just breakup letters, but but all letters sometimes can be difficult to write, especially the conclusion. How do you kind of pull it all together? Well, for the past several months, we've been looking at a particular book in the New Testament. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Now, other than the book of Galatians, this probably is the most scathing letter in the New Testament. Paul doesn't really pull any punches, does he? The church had written to him about certain things, asking him questions, and he heard certain rumors going on, and so he addresses, like a parent, like a wise parent, he addresses their concerns. He does so with love and grace and nuance and hopefulness. Paul was a spiritual optimist. Paul believed that the church that was bought by the holy blood of Jesus Christ could, in effect, live a holy life and existence in this world. And so this letter, as, we, as it comes to an end, this letter is Paul's heartfelt and hope-filled plea for the Corinthian church to frankly just grow up, to grow up in the maturity of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. 
they were living sort of compartmentalized lives, you know, sprinkling a little bit of Jesus here and a little bit of Jesus there. But Paul reminds them that the, the tentacles of Christianity, it affects it all. Christianity and the gospel extends to almost every sphere of life, to eating and drinking, to communication and conflict, to sex and lawsuits and marriage, singleness, clothing, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and doctrines like the resurrection. All of those things Paul answers, addresses, and applies a Christian worldview and the gospel to those things. Christianity has something to say about nearly everything. And so, after all of this, Paul parks the car. Paul puts down his pen. Paul has to end the letter. Now, this isn't a breakup letter. Oh, but it's much harder than a breakup letter. It was a spiritual intervention. So, how do you end that sort of letter? Well, this morning, we're going to have an answer to that very question. The big idea that will be behind, my, uh, behind me on the screen is simply this. Paul ends his letter like he began, encouraging the church that the gospel, it changes everything. That's what we're going to look at today. Paul applying the gospel to, to about six different things going on as he concludes this. So turn with me to... 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to kind of slowly go and work our way through this. So we'll read the first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, they will accompany me. We'll stop there for a moment. So in verses 1 through 4, Paul addresses a topic of concern. This is the last in a long series of concerns. Paul's addressing a historical situation that was going on. So the Jerusalem church was in a dire strait. People were literally starving because of famine in that land. And so Paul is addressing not just this church, but other churches to take up a collection, an offering, in order to give it to the church in Jerusalem. We read more about this in the second letter to the Corinthians in chapters 8 through 9. And so Paul is suggesting that this church, like many churches, should come together, take up an offering, and then Paul will either kind of uh, send it with a carrier, a trusted carrier, or he himself will accompany them and bring this money, this collection to the church. Paul, in verse 1, instructs this church to do a few things. I don't know if you notice this. Let's let's look at this. It's, It's actually quite practical. We learned that this offering was to be taken up on the first day of the week. And I'd just like to point out here, here is one of the earliest, a very early reference to the gathering of the church weekly. Actually, to the gathering of the church weekly on the first day, Resurrection Day. The church wasn't gathering any longer on the Sabbath. Now, here, they're gathering on the Lord's Day, His Resurrection Day, the first day of the week. They were then to set aside money 
to then store it up, and then Paul would carry it either by himself or he'd kind of get someone, commission someone to be the mail carrier to take this offering to the church in Jerusalem. That's Paul's idea. Paul's final topic of concern, it's about money. About encouraging the generosity of the church in light of the suffering of Christians elsewhere. So in many ways, what we see here is an early example of what historically Christians have called, and and our church calls it too, a benevolence offering, a benevolence fund, storing up money to help people who are in need. That's what's going on here. We often think that talking about money is awkward, and maybe it is from time to time, but it doesn't have to be. You see, a holy church is a financially generous church. Those two things, those two realities go together. And I might just add that I found that to be true of this church. This is a very generous church who cares about the needs of those within the church and those outside of the church as well. Now, although Paul is addressing a concern regarding money to be taken up to help out with the plight and suffering of Christians in Jerusalem, there's also something going on, also something else going on. You see, Paul is taking great care. Paul is seizing an opportunity, a, a tragic opportunity, but, a, but an opportunity nonetheless. He's seizing this as an opportunity to do something. Paul is encouraging wealthier Gentile churches to give to poor Jewish Christians. You see, this offering wasn't merely about money. It was actually also about bridging a cultural gap. Perhaps the greatest cultural gap and religious cultural gap ever. Jew and Gentile. Jews had been, as we, as we learn through the ministry of Jesus Christ, they have been brought together with Gentiles. There are one in Christ. And yet, as you read Acts and, and, and as you listen to Paul in his various letters like Galatians, you know that there's still a divide, isn't there? They're still working this out, this Jew-Gentile divide. It's painfully clear that what God has wedded together, well, we so easily divide. And so Paul takes this opportunity, this tragic opportunity, and seeks to mend this divide in small part by the generosity of Gentile churches to a Jewish church. Now, we don't currently experience that same sort of Gentile-Jew distinction in, in the same way at our church. But that doesn't mean that there aren't distinctions. There aren't cultural distinctions that need to be reconciled and mended. I mean, historically, when you think about it in the church in America, this is being seen most horrifyingly and easily seen, clearly seen, tragically seen with slavery and then segregation. But we also see it in other forms. We see this politically. We see the, uh, a divide with, with personalities and preferences. We see it in economically in class distinctions. We see cultural divides all over the place. We like to think that we're in a really divided age, but every age is divided. It's just divided in different ways. The old hymn, Our 
Our, our hearts are prone to wander. Well, well, it's true. Our hearts are prone to wander. And one of the ways they're prone to wander is into factions and divisions and distinctions. And yet, what Christ has wedded together, we so easily divide. And so Paul capitalizes on a very dark time in history, the economic distribution, or kind of the the economic destitution of the church in Jerusalem, and he uses that moment in time to seek to mend one of the great divides in his day. And he does so by something as simple as an offering. I don't know if you notice this, but all through this letter, Paul has the same principle, the same truth. He just applies it in different ways. Paul's a Northwesterner. He just recycles the same truth and then applies it to different issues and different contexts. And the issue in principle is this. We've seen it in different ways. That just because you have the right to something doesn't mean that you should capitalize on that right. A Christian is not someone constrained by what they can do. They're, they have a higher virtue, a higher ethic. A Christian is constrained by a virtue, by the virtue of love. We see this in chapter 13. The Corinthian church had a right to their money, let's say, but love compelled them to give, to send it to others. They could have spent it on themselves. Instead, love compelled them to set aside their rights and give to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Every age has been a divided age. And though we can't in some ways mend all of the cultural divides in our world, we are, we are supposed to be an embassy of heaven. That's, that's what we're called to be as a church. God has reconciled us to him, and therefore we can be reconciled to one another because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so, applying Paul's principle to our cultural moment, what does it look like to set aside some of our preferences and our rights for the sake of others? What does it look like to to set aside our comforts and some of the things that we might be able to to have a right to do, but but because of love, we set those things aside. We, We give them up out of love. We seize on cultural divides and moments, and we act constrained by love, give certain things up, and do so for the sake of love. It's not just that we can post things on Facebook. It's ought we to post things on Facebook. Does it build up? Will it divide? Is it an act of love? Now this takes humility. It takes maturity. It takes the gospel. Paul was reading his times, seeing this great need and said, this is one wonderful way in which we can bridge these gaps and bring Jew and Gentile in many ways together. And so we capitalized on it. I don't know what that looks like particularly, but I do know that there are opportunities in which there are, there are cultural gaps and we all, for the sake of the good of others, should consider giving up some of our rights so that we can love them and encourage their own faith with Christ. 
Now look with me in verse 5. We'll read to verse 12. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you to see, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Paul writes that he's going to Corinth. He's coming back to Corinth. Paul planted this church. He's now in Ephesus and he's saying, I'm, I'm going to come back. I'm going to visit. But he doesn't want to just pass through. He wants to stay there for a season. He doesn't want to just quickly bust through Corinth. He, he wants to stay for a year or so. You, you sense Paul's great love for this church, that he wants to linger there. But there's a problem. Verse 8. Paul can't come right now, can he? You see, there's been an opportunity, a ministry opportunity, perhaps an evangelistic opportunity. God has opened up the door for for effective ministry in Ephesus, and so he feels as though he needs to stay. Now, we don't know exactly what that opportunity is. We can guess. All we know is this, that his time there in Ephesus was exceedingly fruitful. We learned that in the book of Acts. And so in light of uh, Paul not being able to come, right now, verse 10, Paul's sending Timothy. And he encourages this church to welcome Timothy. Because you get the sense in verses 10 through 11, they didn't want Timothy. Ordinary Timothy. Right? Timothy was a spiritual bench warmer. That's not who they wanted. They wanted Paul. They most likely probably wanted Apollos. But Apollos isn't coming, verse 12. Paul had encouraged him to go, but Apollos didn't feel it appropriate to go right now. Maybe he knew that, that, that this church had built him up to some sort of cult hero, and so he thought, for the sake of the church, I better stay away from the church. Otherwise, they're going to start worshiping me. Regardless, this church, this church that followed celebrity pastors, they didn't want young, inexperienced Timothy, and yet that's who they were getting. Sometimes the very thing that we want, the very thing that we're so desperately convinced that we want is the very thing that would ruin us. Some things, the very things that we pray for to receive are the very things that if we got would actually undermine God's work in our lives. I think Garth Brooks was right when he summarized this, when he's saying, we often should thank God for unanswered prayers. The church in Corinth was praying for Apollos, Right? Well-spoken of, classically trained Apollos. He had more degrees than a thermometer. That's, that's, that's Apollos. 
Everyone would want Apollos. That's not who they needed. Based on things going on, things we've seen and read about, Apollos would undermine the very work of the gospel in their midst. They needed a faithful brother. They needed Timothy. They needed cherished Timothy. And so Paul writes that they shouldn't despise him. He's, he's working mightily for the Lord. Uh, they should help him, be at peace with him. And then Paul says, and then send him back in one emotional peace. God, in his kindness and grace, so often doesn't give us what we think we need. We pray for certain things, and God sometimes knows that those very things would actually ruin, ruin us, ruin God's work in the midst of our lives. The Corinthians, their, their attitude was they, they, they seem to be gripping God's will. No, we need Apollos right now. And Paul's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. And you see a contrast between the, that sort of Corinthian, you know, white-knuckling God's will, this is what it is. And you see it contrasted with Paul, verse 7. Paul writes, if the Lord wills. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you've ever seen an old Puritan letter, maybe you've read it or you saw it in a museum, right underneath the signature of the person who wrote it, there would be, it would say, D period V period. Which those two letters are Latin, standing for Deo Valente, if God wills. So Puritans would, would sign that. They would say, well, I'm going to come here. I'm going to, you know, would tell of these certain things. But in humility, not knowing exactly, perfectly what would happen, they would end their letters. Well, all that being the case, unless God does something else. God will. Deo Valente. We have our plans. God so often has his plans. As we close 2019, it's even weird to say that we're about to be in 2020, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like a science fiction novel? We're, we're moving into 2020. And all of us dream. We have our New Year's resolutions. We, we've got those things, those goals, those priorities, those things we're excited to see, experience. What's your attitude towards those things? Could you pray those things if God wills? I'll do these things. I have every intention to do this, but maybe God has other plans for me. Could you end whatever your New Year's resolution is with D period V, if God wills? That's Paul's encouragement. Now look at verse 13 with me. Paul writes, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We'll, we'll stop there. There's a lot there. Verse 13, in many ways, could be the, the thesis, the summary of the entire letter. And Paul pits two things against each other. Or he puts two things aside each other. Doctrine and love. Truth. And love. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, we're so grateful that you're here. And I'm guessing you've got many, many questions as it relates to what is, what is a Christian, what is Christianity all about. And though I really can't answer all of them right now, 
I would like to point out that in a sort of confessional way, that Christians historically have gotten this wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm certain all of us have experienced Christians who have been truth-tellers but seem to lack love. Or we're all about love but have no truth. Now, although historically Christians have fallen off of one side of that horse, Christianity is itself truth and love. It's not one or the other. Christianity is 100% truth and 100% love. Christianity is truth wrapped in love. And we know that because it's all about a person. And it's not just that this person taught true things and was and taught like a, an ethic of love. No, no, no. This, this person embodied, he personified truth and love. This person is none other than Jesus Christ. In John's gospel in chapter 14, Jesus said this about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus personifies truth. Jesus is truth. And then if you just flip one chapter over later, Jesus spoke these things, these words. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for a friend. And Jesus did that very thing. Jesus personifies his love by laying down his life. Jesus is truth. Jesus is love. And perhaps we see this most clearly when Jesus interacts with people. Maybe, maybe think of the Good Samaritan. Jesus talks with her. He crosses cultural boundaries. And he does so out of love. But he doesn't just do that. He then speaks real precisely in, in, a, in a real prophetic type of way into her life. And he says that there can be newness of life. There can be forgiveness of sin, but that can only be found in him himself. Jesus, in his interactions with people, embodied 100% love and 100% truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is love. And he displays these two characteristics most clearly when he dies in the place of sinners. And so if you're not a Christian, uh, we might get this wrong as Christians, but just know this, that Jesus didn't get that wrong. And we would love to talk more about this Christian gospel. I'll, I'll be at the back of the church, or better yet, just grab someone in this church. They're filled with people who could explain what it means to follow Jesus. Now for the Christian, it, it's it's, I think, sometimes easy to categorize ourselves as a, as, a, as a person who embodies love or someone who embodies truth. Maybe it's a personality thing. I'm a truth person. I can't help it. Or I, I, just, I, I just love. I have a lot of grace. I just can't help it. But those two things are not in opposition. Paul lays them side by side and says that a Christian should be someone who is 100% truth and 100% love. That's the conviction of a Christian to embody both of those realities at the exact same time. Because what happens when you don't? The author Warren Worsby is helpful. He, he wrote this, that truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. I think that's exactly right. As it relates to love and truth, we don't need subtraction. We need addition. We need both of them. 
over the years as I've uh, walked with people in conflict, either marriage or, or parents and child or, or just even just conflict with friends, I, I've, I've learned that usually it doesn't come from the truth, someone speaking the truth, right? The, the problem was that someone did speak the truth. They said true things. The problem in most conflict is actually that truth was spoken, but it wasn't spoken in love. And when that happens, all it does is just fuel the fire on our sinful hearts, and it just ratchets up the conflict. But I've also learned that people can hear profound truth, profound criticism, if you lather love upon it. All love, all truth, all the time. Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. And yet, what God has united, like you would say at a wedding, what God has united, let no man separate. They go together. So Paul writes in verse 13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, courageous in this doctrine, in this truth. Preach it, teach it, encourage others, disciple others into that, and do so in everything. Do it in love. Verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and labor. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortuantus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Paul here in these few verses points out leaders in this church in Corinth. Stephanus and his household, Fortuantus and Achaicus. And then just look what Paul says about them in verse 15. He said they, were, they devoted themselves to service, to serving the saints, and that they refreshed Paul's very spirit as they spent time with him. And so in light of this, uh, in, si- in light of these, these, these servants, these laborers, these, these people who served the church so faithfully, Paul urges the Corinthians to do two things. Verse 16 to be subject to such as these and to also all of the other fellow laborers and workers. And then second, verse 18, to give recognition to them, to recognize such people. You see, as Paul's finishing this letter, he he points out servants in the church. Now, these servants, they're not extraordinary. We, We sort of know so because of their name. One means lucky. You know, that's where we get the word fortune. One's just lucky. And the other is Guy from Micaiah. That's his name, right? You couldn't have had any more ordinary names. These were not the Instagram influencers, all right? These were just ordinary people who, because of their faithfulness, became extraordinary. Sometimes we're so thrilled with the flashy and the novel and the new, just like the Corinthians were, that we forget to point out those who are faithfully serving in our midst. Faithful people, serving people, serving behind the scenes, and we miss it. We're blind to it. We take them for granted. 
we often recognize maybe the rich or those who are extremely influential or seemingly talented in various ways. And we, we, we fail to see the, the, the silent, quiet saints working behind the scenes for the sake of the building up of the church who are, by their labor, refreshing the church. And Paul reminds us that we need to recognize them. We need to thank them. We need to appreciate and honor them. I mean, I, I wish I could go through, I, I'd probably list all of you guys to just go through all of the men and women who serve our congregation in some wonderful ways. In children's ministry, in youth ministry, in hospitality, in set up and tear down and worship. We could go on and on and on. I know this, that when I see that, when I see people jumping in and helping put up chairs or take down chairs and putting out crackers so my kids can eat them and make crumbs and then sweep up after them, I'm serious when I say it refreshes my soul. I assume it probably refreshes your soul to see your fellow brothers and sisters serving when you see men and women seeking, okay, how do I explain First Samuel to a second grader and spending Saturday night thinking through that? Oh, what an encouragement that is to my soul. But now there's, there's another application here too. Paul is calling this church to open their eyes to the people serving them. And in many ways, this, if you were ever wondering, this sums up our ministry philosophy of this church, our leadership philosophy of the church. What this means is that all we're doing, let's, let's take deacons, for instance. All we're doing as it relates to deacons is looking for people who are already serving the congregation in a deacon-like fashion and then drawing the congregation together and saying, let's affirm they're already doing. Let's recognize them for what it is. They're serving our congregation in a deacon-like way. So Mike and Carol and Katrina and Jason, they were already serving our church in a deacon-like way. And then we gathered together and said, oh, we should recognize them and honor them in their service to us. The very same thing can be said of elders. God gives every church gifts, gifts of men and women. And so we need eyes to see those gifts, to thank God for those gifts, to honor those gifts, and to do so, to honor those gifts by recognizing them, by recognizing their sacrifices and service to us so that we don't squander those gifts. And now lastly, let's just look at these last few verses as we come to the end of this book. Verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house send you heartily greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
Paul's almost finished. Paul's almost finished with this letter. I'm almost finished too. But here we read that Paul, he he sends greetings from other churches. uh, Other churches that this church evidently knew of. And he says that they should be greeted with a, that that not only are they sending their greetings, he said, "And, and when you see them, greet them with a holy kiss. Which is weird for us, right? This idea of a holy kiss. It is in our culture. It is not in many cultures. I, I remember spending some time in another culture and I was walking down a street and a man grabbed my hand to walk down with me. And I remember thinking, that's weird. Ah, but it wasn't weird in that. Men just walked down holding hands. That, there, was, there, there was nothing weird about it. It was a cultural thing. Well, in Paul's day, it was completely culturally appropriate to greet people with a kiss. And so he says, when, when you see these, these, these Christians, these saints, these brothers and sisters, these other churches, greet them in the most culturally appropriate, most hospitable, loving way you can. Kiss them. You see, Paul had this expansive vision of the church. It wasn't one church pitted against another church. It wasn't, you know, a church by mutual destruction. Like, if, if that church dies, then maybe we'll get them. That, no. This wasn't a competition. Paul wants this church and every Christian to be a worldly Christian. Now, I'm not talking about like sinful. I'm not using worldly in that sort of sense. I'm saying that, that, that we should be Christians who are looking at the world and seeing that God is working all throughout the world. That a Christian is part of God's global purpose of working in every nook and cranny of this world, redeeming a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself all under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to to look beyond ourselves to what God's doing in the world. Years ago, I sat down with this this, this man, this, this, this Christian minister who really did have the gift of evangelism. I mean, if you ever spent time with him, you'd know that off the... He was just really gifted as an evangelist. And so I asked him, I said something equivalent to, so, so let's say you, you know, someone commits their life to Christ, what do you do? Well, what's the first thing you do? And he goes, oh, that's easy. He goes, that's really easy. I tell them to write down a list of all the, the names of the, the, the people in their life who don't know Jesus, and I then give them an assignment that they need, he, they need to go home and, or go to them and tell them about what they've done, what they've heard, how they've trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, I, th- I was like, well, that's odd. And so I said, why do you do that? I mean, most people would say, no, you need to memorize some scripture. I'm going to start discipling you. I'm going to do all these things. Well, why start with evangelism? And he said, well, it's really easy. Early on in a Christian life, there's this subtle tendency to think that it's all about you. I need to read. I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to learn these things. And you subtly become a spiritual navel gazer. And he said, I wanted to, to, to remind them that They were saved for a purpose. That when God blesses someone, he doesn't just bless them to bless them. God blesses so that they can be a blessing. And because, you know, a Christian doesn't know any better, he said, I'm just going to, you know, tell them that, no, right off the get-go, just start telling people about what God's done in your life. Realize that you're part of this bigger story about what God's doing. And you don't know where it's going. You just know that now you're part of this, this kingdom that God is building through the death resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it is about you in one sense, but it's not about you in another sense. 
God blesses to be a blessing. And so Paul reminds this church, there are so many other churches. All of these churches, greet them. Remind yourself that whatever is going around in your own little spiritual real estate, it's just one piece, one sliver of a bigger thing that God's doing throughout the world. That when Christians are suffering in another part, we too should be burdened and suffered. We should be praying for our brothers and sisters in other areas. That's why we do that as we gather in a church. It's why we pray for other churches in this area and uh, what God's doing in other nations. Because we, we, we need to be worldly Christians. We need to be concerned with what God's doing throughout this world. It's not just about us. It's not about us. Because unfortunately, as we learn in verse 22, not everyone loves God, do they? And we learn in verse 22 that if anyone has no love for God, let him be cursed. Let him be accursed. Meaning that if you don't love God, you don't have the blessing of God, which is the opposite of the curse of God. And then Paul prays for the Lord's return. But Jesus hasn't returned yet, has he? And so it's not too late. It's not too late for the first time or the millionth time to turn to God, to turn into his love, to embrace his love, and to experience his love. Because that love is, verse 23, a gift of grace. The gospel is all about grace. We didn't deserve it. We just get to open the gift and enjoy it. Years ago, I ended my breakup letter saying that I, I wished and hoped for well, right? I did the, like, I, I hope we can be friends. That always goes well on those. And I ended my letter that way. Paul doesn't end his letter that way, does he? He says, my love be with you. He says some really intense things, some scathing things, but he does so all with love. And the only way that he can do that is because he's realized that Jesus Christ himself is truth and love together. Paul can, can write at the very end of this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Because as Paul is having his spiritual intervention with this church, he knows that what they truly need, what they ultimately need, what they need more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' grace, Jesus' love personified in his death and resurrection. And so that's what Paul gave him. In different ways and in different times, Paul keeps applying a holy gospel to an unholy people. And the final question that I'll ask is this. What do you think? Did the church listen? Do you think this church heeded Paul's words? Did they listen? Did they change? In some way, it's up for a debate. I don't think the debate is interesting because I think there's a more pressing question, and it's this. Will we hear? Will we heed? Will we learn? Will we apply 
this book, this text, this chapter, God's word to our lives. Let's pray. God, we, we are grateful that, that our relationship with you is not based on our own holiness. It's based on Jesus' holiness. We, we thank you that though we have failed time and time again to live up to your gospel, Lord, we, we thank you that it comes to us over and over and over again. We pray, Lord, that we would heed your word that we'd apply your word, we'd live in light of your word, not in guilt and shame, but in joy, and that we would live a thriving Christian um, existence as we do so, Lord. Thank you for your word, and we pray this in your name. Amen.